nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor Program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor Program right here on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And, of course, on your smart device if you've downloaded the free WFMD app. I am Chris Murray, your host. Thanks so much for being with us. A nice program laid out for you today. Some interesting uh, stories of this week. Some economic data, quite a bit, actually, including the two ISM uh, reports and also the um, the big jobs report yesterday. So we'll be talking about all of that and more. And then also joining me in just a little bit, uh, Mr. Bill Bullard. He uh, is the CEO and president of RCAF USA. And uh, this is um, the this is the um, the organization that really is out there fighting for independent U.S. cattle producers. So we're going to be talking about how big government uh, really treats unfairly the small farms, ranchers, cattle growers, etc., and uh, a fight in particular that RCAF USA is fighting. Also about the importance of knowing where your food comes from. Um, if you're not aware of it, that is not a transparent uh, process. And um, all the way from food being brought into the country, repackaged as with a USDA approval, I should say, wrapped in that. Uh, and of course, the nonsense with the organic marketplace. Uh, so much of the things that are marketed as organic. And, uh, of course, you're paying a higher price for that. When you really trace the lineage of that product, uh, it's not oftentimes organic. So, you know, this is about common sense, being aware, not being taken advantage of, supporting local um, businesses if and, and when possible in the importance of that, if they deserve your business, of course. Um, but if they do provide good products and services and um, they do it well and treat you with respect and have your best interest at heart. Um, it's so important to support, especially these days with as political as these corporations have become. I think they're making a terrible mistake, um, but it's the elitist mentality. And uh, that's a lot of damage has been done in boardrooms and with leadership and outside influences. Uh, so, again, that circles back, in my opinion, to the real importance of supporting uh, local businesses, uh, community businesses, um, and also uh, American businesses that, uh, again, do a good job and treat you well. So as far as uh, things that happened this week, a really large deal was announced. Square is acquiring uh, the buy now, pay later company based over in Australia called Afterpay. So Square is uh, purchasing Afterpay for $29 billion in stock. I mean, that's a massive deal. Uh, Square, of course, is uh, the brainchild of the Twitter 
co-founder Jack Dorsey. Uh, Dorsey is the CEO of both companies, both Square and Twitter. Now, Afterpay has been a part of a coalition of companies pushing into debit transactions, allowing users to defer payments interest-free, interest free, excuse me, and skipping credit checks. So kind of interesting to see that area and what's happening there. Uh, analysts called the deal a bold acquisition, saying that um, the analysts believe the street will react positively to the deal from a strategic perspective in that Afterpay fits snugly into Square's two-sided uh, ecosystem of merchants and consumers. So Afterpay is well-established. It has more than 11 million customers who operate with 64,000 merchants. So, um, again, this buy now, pay later is an interesting space. Um, it's an online payment method through which consumers can pay for items in installments. Um, it has already taken off uh, during the virus. And, again, the uh, expectation is is that Square and uh, the company are going to um, work well together. There's going to be a synergy there with Square and Afterpay. So time will tell. Um, not much good to be said about Jack Dorsey, especially with uh, what he does with uh, Twitter um, and the bias um, there. But we'll have to wait and see if uh, if this all works together. And, and it's also good, by the way, that um, Twitter originally had some uh, nice competition with Parler. And then uh, Parler was just blown up because of um, what Big Tech did to it as far as taking away its platform to operate. But you have others coming online that are really getting some traction. Um, it's uh, uh, Getter, I believe, is the one out there that uh, is really offering a nice platform for uh, honest um, speech and uh, thought, if you will. So uh, we'll have to wait and see, again, how uh, how much traction they get. But out of the gate, they've really put up some big numbers, and that's good. Um, you know, when you look at the Twitter and Facebook and Google, uh, Amazon, all of these that really have been uh, kind of drug kicking and screaming before Congress because of their monopoly type of um, – of setup, they either squash the competition or they buy them. Uh, and that's fine. They, you know, that's the capital markets. And if someone develops something and they get a check put in front of them that they just can't walk away from, that's fine. But again, as, as far as how the companies are run uh, and the influence they have and what they determine is correct information and not correct is uh, a joke these days. So that's why you see a lot of people looking for alternative platforms in social media so that they can um, feel more comfortable, not have their information sold like Facebook does with the data mining, etc. So um, back to what I said, we'll see with this deal in particular how Square and Afterpay, uh, the synergies there, and if they work well. Uh, time is running out for Congress to raise or suspend the debt ceiling before the U.S. government runs out of cash to pay the bills. 
uh, lawmakers missed a Saturday deadline. That's last Saturday to extend uh, former President Donald Trump's two year suspension of the nation's borrowing limit, which was automatically reinstated at the beginning of August. So the debt ceiling, which uh, actually hit twenty two trillion in August of twenty nineteen, is the legal limit on the total amount of debt that the federal government can borrow on behalf of the public. So already this week, we've seen the Treasury Department beginning to deploy this so-called extraordinary measures to ensure the government can continue to pay their uh, obligations for the time being. Now, the Congressional Budget Office estimated at the end of July that the government would probably run out of money to pay its bills Sometime in the fall, likely October or November, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said recently that he doesn't expect any Republican senators to vote to raise the debt ceiling, meaning that unless Democrats can win over at least 10 GOP senators in order to bypass the 60-vote filibuster, they'll need to raise the debt limit in their $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, which is, again, something that's just going to be jammed down everybody's throat, even though it's uh, harmful for the country. Uh, Staying on that note, the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill is going to add anywhere from $256 billion to $400 billion plus to our deficit. So according to a highly anticipated budget report, that will likely exacerbate uh, concerns among conservative lawmakers regarding the tag price of uh, Biden's initiative. You're looking at, like I said, up to 400 plus billion dollars um, of, of new debt. So the Congressional Budget Office, uh, their official cost estimate for the legislation that the Senate is currently debating undercuts the author's initial arguments that the legislation is fully paid for and therefore wouldn't drive up the national debt. So, you know, there's the whole bait and switch thing. Um, Actually, Senator Steve Daines from Montana said the CBO report proves that the author's insistence the legislation would not increase the debt is, quote, untrue, unquote, and that will only heap huge amounts of debt on our future generations. So just remember, um, it's not an infrastructure bill. That's just the name of it. It's a Trojan horse for non-infrastructure spending. And of course, the um, liberals and progressives are trying to redefine the word as far as infrastructure. We have a lot of need for uh, infrastructure. I've said this before. It should have been done. This should have already been passed and in motion back in 2019. You had a president who really wanted to improve roads, bridges, airports, you name it. The infrastructure that is so far behind and so weakened in many areas across the United States that easily could have gotten a bipartisan deal done on traditional infrastructure. Pelosi didn't want to um, hand President Trump a win, so it never got legs 
to get his way. The first, um, I, I think the first real effort that took so much time by the Trump administration was tax relief and tax reform, uh, both on the individual and the corporate level, repatriating trillions of dollars with a one-time option to bring your money from overseas back here to the United States for these corporations. So um, I guess if the push would have been infrastructure, that would have been accomplished, but then you wouldn't have had the uh, the tax relief that was provided. So, um, and now, unfortunately, it's not infrastructure. Like I said, it's a redefinition of infrastructure. It's a Trojan horse. So people... And politicians are great at this on both sides, naming these bills, coming up with acronyms, trying to make it warm and fuzzy. The infrastructure bill is junk. Um, I mean, you know, maybe 10 percent of it is good. The rest of it is junk. Uh, and it's very hurtful to our great country. So shame on them. Um, and also, it was interesting I saw this week. Um the opinion of um, some people out there, many people actually, analysts, uh, economists, in particular Paul Ashworth, the chief U.S. economist at Capital Economics, that um, you know, no one knows for sure the state of the American economy, where we will be one year from now, but the existing evidence all points in one direction, and that's a uh, disaster, not good at all. So during the rollout of the virus vaccines, countless economic analysts predicted the remainder of 2021 would be marked by rapid economic growth. You know, despite extremely low levels of death related to the virus, new data from the federal government suggests the economy grew at a much slower pace than expected for the second quarter of 2021. So many analysts were out there, they they were saying, look, the Q2 of 2021, we're going to have 8.5% growth. That was a consensus. But just last week, when we got the report on our gross domestic product from the Commerce Department, it was 6.5%. That's a 26% difference. That's a massive difference. And again, according to Paul Ashworth, the economy's disappointing performance is a strong sign that government stimulus provided surprisingly little bang for our bucks. So a ton of money was spent, has been spent. A lot of it's still on the sidelines, hasn't even gone out yet. So we don't know what the impact would be. Uh, and, of course, they're trying to uh, spend trillions and trillions more before we see what that impact has been. I mean, again, we know that whatever they did didn't create to the economic growth that they wanted. Um, The expectation of 8.5 and you get 6.5, that's very disappointing. Um, And plus, it's just a sugar high. We need good, solid, organic growth. Lower taxes, support small businesses, have people... Uh, really make it competitive for the job market out there so that you get the very best worker based on their performance, not on anything else. And, of course, their heart and their desire and their drive. 
and that's when you see things humming along like we did before the virus came. Uh, that's, I think, what's uh, necessary. We'll have to wait and see if that ever comes back into play. We know uh, it's proven. It works, not the other junk there paying people not to work. That's who would have ever thought we would say that in the United States of America, pay people to sit home, not work. It's ridiculous. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, some economic data coming up. Uh, Mr. Bill Bullard, he's the CEO and president of RCAF USA. Some really disappointing things going on right now um, for the Small farmers, small ranchers, cattle growers, um, and we're going to be talking about that. Also, uh, the uh, current download we have, instant download at murrayfinancialgroup.com. Will your money last as long as you do? So you check out this uh, uh, eight-page guide to see why uh, a retirement income analysis is important for your retirement. Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. It's right on the homepage. You just click get my copy, uh, instant download to your email. Uh, I'm going to take that down this week. So if uh, you're concerned and interested about your retirement and retirement income, you'll want to go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. And uh, my tongue's sticking to the roof of my mouth today for some reason, so I apologize. Um, And and click that instant download. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. That's what it's for. Loud thunder, heavy rain, thin line between joy and pain. It's a long, strange trip, it's all insane. You ain't never gonna be the same. Living life through the night, thin line of a lightning strike. Sometimes the only light when the moon is tucked away, pistons popping. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and also uh, free on your smart device if you've downloaded the WFMD app so you can take it with you uh, wherever you go. And, uh, yeah, as far as economic data, pretty busy week this week. We saw the construction spending uh, increased by 8.2% on a year-on-year basis in the month of June. Um, so, uh, spending on private construction projects climbed four tenths of a percent. Uh, you really saw a big, uh, surge, actually 1.8% surge in single family home building. So you continue to see that sector try to keep pace with the great demand out there from buyers, um, investment in private non-residential construction like gas and oil well drilling actually fell seven tenths of a percent. Um, and public construction projects dropped 1.2% in the month of June. Um, Now, when we look at factory orders, new orders for U.S.-made goods increased more than expected in June, um, while business spending on equipment was solid as well. So the Commerce Department said that factory orders rose 1.5% in June after advancing 2.3% in May. Uh, Overall, Um, When you look at a year-on-year basis, orders cranked, and they were up 18.4%. No big surprise, you know, 
because this time last year with the virus, uh, all of the uncertainty and a lot of things were idle and there were a lot of problems. Some of them still persist, but you see that pent up demand where people, many people, um, millions of people have put the virus in their rearview mirror. And uh, even though there's talk about lockdowns and mask mandates and whatever else they're going to come up with, they being the government and the nonsense that, you know, we often see and hear come from the CDC, uh, people, like I said, they put that behind them. Uh, They're kind of looking and judging what that uh, experience was like during the uh, height of the virus. And I think there there's a lot of disappointment and there's also a lot of anger that they um, are not going to be uh, they're not going to allow themselves to be treated that way again, and they're just going to uh, to live their lives. Two of the um, big reports this week came from the ISM, the Institute for Supply Management. First, we saw that manufacturing dipped to a six-month low in the month of July to a reading of 59.5. So um, anything above 50 is growth. But we don't want it going backwards. Again, with all the demand out there, we want to see expansion. We want to see positive numbers. And we didn't get that, um, you know, a move forward with the manufacturing sector. We actually took a step back. Also, the ISM services index. We're a service-based economy, so the bulk of what happens here in the United States of America, you know, that's the arena that you look at first and foremost. And it was at 64.1 last month. So that was solid. Business activity, employment, and prices all climbed in the month of July. Of the 17 service industries that were surveyed, all reported growth last month. Um, even as businesses were complaining about higher prices, and we know individuals are complaining about that too. The other big thing this week was uh, employment information. So we saw on Wednesday that the private sector employment increased by 330,000 jobs from June to July. That was according to ADP and uh, Moody Analytics. They do a report in collaboration and uh, it was 330,000 jobs. Um, so then the next day on Thursday, we saw the initial filings for unemployment insurance, which, of course, is a proxy for layoffs. And that came in at 385,000 um, below that 400,000 number. But I just have to remind everybody before the virus came, made its way here from China. Whether it was a wet market or in the lab, you know, you can make your mind up on that. But before the virus came here, when we were rolling along with work and our economy and the financial markets in an organic, traditional way, the average was 220,000 applications per week. So I'm not going to get excited about 385,000, even though they want you to. That's just that doesn't make any sense. So that's what we saw there. Then yesterday, we saw the um, big jobs report come out from the Labor uh, Labor Department, excuse me, and it showed that uh, payrolls increased 943,000 in the month of July, and the unemployment rate fell to 5.4%. So that's better than what was expected. Um, Most of the jobs, 380,000 of them, were in leisure and hospitality. Uh, no big 
surprise there is hotels, cruises, bars, restaurants, et cetera, are opening back up and trying to get people uh, on the uh, employment rolls. So, yeah, of that 380000 was uh was in leisure and hospitality. Another 261000 was in uh, public and private education. So um, good jobs report headline-wise, for sure. Not going to dispute that. But when you look at where the jobs were added, you have to question that a little bit. Um, also, the labor force participation rate was little changed. It's 617 um, it needs to be better than that. We need more people participating uh, in the workforce. 61.7. And then the other thing, just to remind you, it was great. Average hourly earnings were up four-tenths of a percent month over month, uh, 4% annually. So good. People are making more money. Guess what? That's less than inflation. So you're actually losing purchasing power. So it's great that you're bringing more money home, and I hope you are. But just remember, when you do the math, it's um, it, it's not in your favor. You're actually losing purchasing power, the erosion of the dollar. So that report headline was great. When you get into it, not so great. Um, okay, quick break. And uh, when we come back, we'll be talking with my guest, Mr. Uh, Bill Bullard from RCAF USA about small farms, small ranchers, small cattle growers and producers, and uh, talk about the uh, the really David versus Goliath fight that they have going on uh, with the United States government. Also, go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. Uh, will your money last as long as you do? That's the eight-page guide. You can check it out to see why our retirement income analysis is important for your retirement. I'm going to take that down this week. So, um, again, if you want to take advantage of that, go to murrayfinancialgroup.com, trade on the homepage. You just click on Get My Copy, and it's an instant download to your email. And uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Your financial editor with Chris Murray on 930 WFMD. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And of course, uh, on your smart device, if you've downloaded the free WFMD app, uh, thanks so much for being with us uh, today. Uh, if you're just joining us for the second half of the program, welcome. And uh, as I mentioned, a good program for you today. Very interesting. Uh, talking with our guest, Mr. Bill Bullard, who is the CEO of RCAF USA, which is headquarters uh, in Billings, Montana. He's been in that position since uh, April 2001, and he's testified before Congress and executive branches uh, uh, agencies, I should say, uh, on behalf of RCAF USA members and a lot going on right now. And again, uh, the, the folks that listen to our program, 
um, not just in you know the mid-Atlantic area, but around the country, uh, know that we're definitely uh, supporters of small businesses, community businesses, small farmers and ranchers. Uh, and I don't care what you're doing if you're involved in uh, growing produce, or uh, you know if you're a dairy farmer or a uh, cattle producer, it doesn't matter to me. It's just important to know what's going on in those uh, vital areas uh, and sectors when it comes to the American economy. Uh, Mr. Bowler, welcome to the program. Thanks for uh, joining us again. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah. So um, did I miss anything about RCAF? You want to give our listeners just a quick overview of what you guys do? Sure. Well, the U.S. cattle industry is the single largest segment of American agriculture, and RCAF USA represents just the cattle producers, just the farmers and ranchers who raise and sell cattle in this multi-segmented beef supply chain. So we're interested in ensuring that our independent cattle producers can remain profitable uh, in the entire United States uh, in this industry, and they have been under tremendous pressure. Uh, for the past seven years now, and we're working to reform the market so that these individual family farmers and ranchers can continue to operate uh, as uh, producing the best beef in the world and doing so on, under the best of conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And I know it's a David and Goliath thing because you have government and big corporations and, you know, others that are fighting against you. Um, like you said, you've been working really hard at it. Uh, how much do you think you've uh, progressed, you know, since you've had all these problems come your way? Well, it is a David and Goliath situation because independent cattle producers are up against some of the most powerful economic and political voices in Washington, D.C. The meatpacking lobby is extremely powerful. They have been able to shape the framework within which our industry operates over the past several decades. And, of course, they've shaped it to benefit themselves. So now we have just four packers, two of which are Brazilian-owned. So there's four packers, two of them foreign-owned, that control 85% of fed cattle slaughter in the United States. And those are the animals that are raised exclusively for beef production. So we have a tremendous amount of consolidation in the marketplace. And for the past seven years, we've seen an anomaly in the market that is unexplainable. We see consumers paying absolutely record prices for beef. At the same time, cattle producers' prices have been falling. So we have beef prices that consumers pay and cattle prices that the America's ranchers receive are moving in the opposite directions. And a competitive market would never allow that to happen. It means competition has been purged from throughout our industry. And it's the independent cattle producers who are suffering greatly right now with severely depressed prices. At the same time, the consumers are being harmed because they're paying inflated prices for beef. We have to fix this, but Congress continues to be held at bay by this ultra-powerful meatpacking lobby that has that is resisting any kind of reforms. Yeah, and folks, if you want to learn more about what's going on, you can go to uh, r dash. C-A-L-F-U-S-A, rcafusa.com. So on the homepage, I'm looking at it right now, Mr. Bullard, um, I see that it says uh, help pass S-949. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there and why it's so important. 
Well, it's so important because, as I said, competition has been purged from the industry. And the reason it has is because the Packers no longer need to aggressively compete for cattle. And so Senate Bill 949, it's bipartisan, introduced by Senators Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, and Senator John Tester, a Democrat from Montana. And the bill would force the Packers to compete in the marketplace. It would force the Packers to purchase at least 50% of their cattle from independent cattle producers in the competitive cash market. What the Packers have done is they've shifted large volumes of cattle out of the competitive cash market, and they place these cattle into what we call captive supply arrangements. They're forward-type uh, contracts that don't even establish a price. So the Packers remove large volumes of cattle out of the competitive market. None of those cattle contribute to price discovery, and then they're able to leverage those large volumes of supplies that they have committed to them in order to keep the cattle producers' prices low. So Senate Bill 949 corrects that by forcing the packers to compete, and we're pushing hard. But the meatpacking lobby continues to have considerable influence in the U.S. Senate Agricultural Committee, for example, that hasn't even brought this measure up for a vote even though it's been introduced clear back in March. Yeah, and like you said, it's bipartisan, um, obviously, with uh, Tester and uh, Grassley. So you would think that that would uh, garner some close attention, uh, knowing that it's important on both sides of the aisle as far as, um, you know, the members of RCAF, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, you know, it almost becomes a moot point if it's not free market that you guys are operating in. Well, and that's exactly right, because you you can't have a ca- capitalistic economy if you don't have competition in it. Competition is the key, and competition is gone from our independent uh, cattle markets. And so the only solution uh, is to restore competition. Otherwise, we're looking at alternatives like receiving government price supports, and our industry does not want to go there. We want to earn the income Uh, from the competitive marketplace, but can only do that if Congress intervenes and prevents these uh, monopolistic meat packers from leveraging down prices for cattle producers. So it's a huge fight, a very important fight, both for the American rancher and for the American consumer. Because again, the consumer is being exploited today by paying inflated prices while the value of cattle has been seriously depressed. And consumers should be up in arms over that. And again, I think it's a it's an awareness that's just not there. Um, I bring this up often just because it's close to the heart for me um, as far as where does your you know, your food come from? And uh, is it is it true what what's said on the label and the whole overblown thing with organic? Um, so it, it, it the more it's talked about and, and brought to light, I think, as everything, uh, the better off people are. And that's, of course, why we're speaking about it this morning. So um, who can participate in helping to pass this legislation? Well, everyone can. Um, Everyone can call their member of Congress and say it's important to restore competition in the cattle industry. And we need Senate Bill 949 to be passed as quickly as possible. So everyone, consumers and producers alike, Uh, can join in to encourage and urge their members of Congress. And in this case, it's the Senate, because this bill is sitting in the Senate. 
So member, producers and consumers need to call both of their state senators that represent them in Washington, D.C., and urge them to support the Grassley-Tester Senate Bill 949 that restores competition in the cattle industry. Okay, great. And I'm going to squeeze a break in here, but re- real quick, I would be um, remiss if I didn't ask. You guys are also dealing with this whole uh, fake meat thing. Um, and just like the dairy industry is dealing with the, you know, they're calling a whatever rice milk. Of course, people know if they right, think right. about it, that's impossible. And it's it's hard, and it's not being addressed, and people aren't being educated on it. How is that fight going for you? Well, and it's the very same packers that are purchasing our cattle and that are highly concentrated that are also investing in this fake meat, which is a substitute protein product uh, that, again, helps to displace the cattle producers' access to their own domestic market. So it's a growing issue. It's an issue that needs to be addressed. But we think the first step in the whole process is consumers deserve to know where the beef they are buying is actually produced. Was it born, raised, and harvested by America's cattle farmers and ranchers? Or is it foreign product disguised as U.S. product with a USDA inspection sticker and even in some instances a product of USA label, which is currently allowed on beef that is exclusively produced in foreign countries. Uh, one could say this is a huge mess that needs to be straightened up, and we're, we need the consumer's help to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And the consumer not only would be helping you guys, but uh, we, we help ourselves because um, we get educated, we become more aware, and we get involved in uh, the process of uh, of our food chain, which is extremely important. And we, you know, we learned uh, last year with the virus, you know, the importance of of it. And when we saw those supply disruptions, uh, what happened and the panic it caused some people, et cetera. So uh, we'll, uh, you know, we'll continue to talk about this subject on the other side of this break. Stay tuned. She won't let me help her tie her shoes. No, Daddy, I can do it myself. When she don't get her way, she'll cross her arms and hold her breath. She's a handful, she's a mess. Digging in the dirt in her princess dress. Goes from tiny tornado to sleeping on my chest. God bless the boy. Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and on your smart device if you've downloaded the free WFMD app. Uh, wrapping up our conversation with our guest this morning, Mr. Bill Bullard. Uh, he is the CEO of RCAF USA, and you can go to r-calfusa.com and learn more about what we're uh, talking about this morning. The fight's on. I mean, it's been on for a long time, 
uh, right before the uh, the break there, uh, Mr. Bullard was talking about, um, you know, w- when you look at the transparency and uh, the the origin of where food comes from. And he mentioned earlier that the four biggest uh, beef uh, producers, you've got Tyson's, Cargill, JBS, and National Beef, to my knowledge. Uh, two of those are owned by the Brazilians. And, Mr. Bullard, you pointed out that with the ridiculous country of origin policy we have in place, they can bring it in, repackage it, uh, from Brazil, you know, with a USDA label, and people in the aisle have no idea that that's going on. Well, and that's right, and that's by design, of course, because these multinational meat packers earn tremendous windfall profits if they can source that beef from cheaper sources, such as Nicaragua and Costa Rica and Argentina and Brazil, uh, Mexico, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Any one of those countries, uh, they can source the beef far cheaper than they can. we can produce it here, and they bring it in and sell it to unsuspecting consumers as if it were a USA product. And as a result, they're essentially stealing the good name and reputation of America's hardworking cattle farmers and ranchers. And that's why they need the consumer's help. They need this deception to stop. But uh, there's not enough cattle producers to get that done on their own. So we need the support of the consumers that we've been producing beef for for centuries uh, in order to correct this significant problem. Because if we don't, if we don't, we will lose tens of thousands of more independent cattle producers from the landscape. And that means the food is going to be further controlled by these multinational corporations. And as you indicated, we saw the weaknesses of that skeletonized type system uh, during the COVID pandemic when consumers went to the grocery store and found the beef cases empty. And the reason that occurred is because we do not have a competitive industry in the cattle industry. We do not have market access opportunities for cattle producers in local areas, and regional areas. Uh, this system has been highly centralized, and now it's uh, demonstrated to be extremely vulnerable to shocks in the marketplace, shocks from a pandemic, could be a shock from a weather-related incident, could be a shock related to an animal disease imported into the United States. We have to correct this, both for the consumer and for the independent producer and for the food security interests of this nation. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And and again, um, there's nothing good, and I'm very hard on this, with uh, China that came from the virus um, when it made its way here from there. But we do have to look for some type of silver lining, and that's one thing that we did learn and we should act on is our supply chains, especially in food, but in other areas as well. And if we don't, I think that's really um, a lost opportunity. And, you know, I, I'm kind of a black and white guy, um, and I try to use common sense. And listening to you talk, I don't know why the USDA, as a taxpayer-funded agency, would allow a foreign country to bring their product in and then repackage it with USDA uh, packaging. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I mean, that's false advertising. It's misleading. Um, and you could go on and on. I, I just don't get that. 
Well, and, and we don't either. Other than you follow the money, you follow the power. And again, this is what exactly what the multinational meat packers wanted. This is exactly what the, the federal agencies did for them. Um, and now, only because of the COVID pandemic and the dysfunctional marketplace that can no longer be ignored, are these issues beginning to surface. So consumers have been deceived for years as to where the true origins of their, their meat comes from. And we've been fighting in Congress trying to restore what is called mandatory country of origin labeling for beef. And if consumers had that, then the label on the beef would inform them as to where the animal had been born, where it was raised, and where it was harvested. And if all of those three production steps were the U.S. of A., that meant that that product was exclusively produced in the United States of America by America's cattle farmers and ranchers. And so when consumers purchase that product, they know they are helping to support the domestic supply chain. And the only way they can do that, though, is for Congress to pass mandatory country of origin labeling. And they've resisted for years uh, to do just that. But we continue to fight, and we're asking the consumers to help us to call their members of Congress as well, both the Senate and the House, and urge them to immediately pass a mandatory country of origin labeling bill for beef so consumers can know with certainty uh, where that beef had been born, raised, and harvested. Well, I'm glad you're you're fighting as hard as you are, and we can tell just uh, with your comments and, um, you know, the way you're, uh, you're just passionate about it. And I appreciate that because that's exactly what we need. Um, and, folks, you can go to r-calfusa.com. Um, it tells you about the fight. You can help pass uh, S-949 um, and also help restore mandatory country of origin labeling. Uh, help them with, uh, you know, this fight. It's very, very important. Um, I think it's, you know, just the red-blooded American thing to do also. That's the small part we can play. Look, you hear me say it all the time. I think a lot of these politicians are empty suits and dresses, but... One thing that they'll listen to is polling and public input. So if you can take some time to do that, go to r-calfusa.com and then make a quick phone call. It's in your best interest. Also, think local. Support, you know, the the local farmers and the local uh, processors like Wagner's in Mount Airy, Stony Point Farm Market up in Littlestown, Borman's down in Highland, J.W. Trueth in Baltimore, uh, and it goes on and on. Um, that way, that's another way to know that you're getting quality product that is um, born, raised, taken care of, all the proper vet uh, medicines given to it when necessary, and then processed. And that's exactly what we need. Not something from Brazil or some fake protein where they're calling it meat. That's just not what we need. So I would encourage you to do that. Mr. Bullard, thank you very, very much for taking the time again. Thank you for the fight. And uh, we'll uh, get back with you maybe the end of the year, beginning of next year, and you can let us know uh, how things have progressed. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank uh, you, Chris. Yes, sir. Have a good rest of the weekend. Really appreciate Mr. Bullard, who's the CEO of R-Calf USA, uh, taking time to to tell us about these are the kind of things we don't hear about. We hear about on the news all the stupid stuff. Um, these are the kind of things that make sense and are really, really important to us and our children and our grandchildren. 
Um, and to the American farmer and, you know, the ranchers and the stock growers, um, you, you know, uh, they need help. And don't get me wrong. There's some bad, bad ones in the in the industry, of course. Um, and usually they go out of business here. They don't they're not multi-generational. But a lot of these are. And they really, uh, in my opinion, deserve our help. So I hope you're able to do that. And um, that does it for us. Again, you can go to murrayfinancialgroup.com and get your uh, instant download. Will your money last as long as you do? Um, And uh, you just click on get my copy. It goes right to your email. Uh, Really important question. Will your money last as long as you do? Uh, I'm going to take that down this week. So if you'd like to, uh, to have that and read it and mark it up and highlight it, uh, feel free to do so. Go to murrayfinancialgroup.com. I'll talk with you um, on the uh, business updates, 550, 650, 750, uh, live uh, updates with uh, Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick right here on WFMD. And then uh, see you next Saturday for another edition of the Your Financial Editor program. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success. Extravagant Your friendship It is intimate I feel I'm moving To the rhythm of the other race Your fragrance is intoxicating In a secret Past editions of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com. 930 WFMD Sports Update. From the Fox Sports Studios in Los Angeles. Here's Steve DeSager. In baseball today, the White Sox have beaten the Cubs at Wrigley Field in 10 innings, 8-6. to six. Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen agreed to a six-year contract extension worth $150 million guaranteed. Vikings wide receiver Justin Jefferson left practice with a sprained shoulder. Kawhi Leonard will re-sign with the L.A. Clippers. He had ACL surgery last month. Kevin Durant will sign a four-year extension with the Nets worth nearly $200 million. Durant and the U.S. men's basketball team is playing tonight, 10.30 p.m. Eastern time, in the gold medal game at the Olympics against France, the team that had the late comeback to beat the U.S. in the Olympic opener. The women's gold medal game is Saturday night with the U.S. against host Japan. And Allison Felix was in the news, winning bronze at the 400-meter final, her 10th career Olympic medal, the most for any female in track and field history. News Radio 930. WFMD Frederick. A connoisseur media radio station. Seven o'clock.